Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Does Paul use allegory? That's the question that we're going to try to answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, along with my co-host, Trevin Wax, and back on the podcast today for the second time is Dr. Matthew Emerson. Matt teaches at Oklahoma Baptist University and is the co-executive director of the Center for Baptist Renewal. So Matt, thanks for being back on with us today. Yeah, huge fan. Glad to be here. (laughs) Hey, I think, Matt, I think you're the, we must be big fans of you because I don't know if anyone else has been on twice. Shriner's the only one that's been on multiple times. What, what, didn't we not do two with George Guthrie though? I'm trying, I'm thinking now. I think Scott McKnight, Guthrie, Yeah, we did Oath Taking with Scott McKnight. So you're in the, yeah, you're in the. Well, anyway, you're in the, yeah, you're in the Pantheon. Um, So our passage today is Galatians 4, 21 through 31. And it's interesting because uh, people's interpretation of this can partially depend on which translation they're using. And um, this, the, the discussion around this leads to a, a broader conversation about biblical hermeneutics and, and how we interpret the, the Bible. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and read the passage, and then, Matt, you can help us walk through some of the difficulties. And not surprisingly, I'm reading this in the CSB. So Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively. Uh, Some translations here say this is an allegory. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, For the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now, you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the children... The child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Okay, so Paul here is quoting the Old Testament story about Sarah and Hagar, but he uses it to make kind of a different point about the uh, hope and the identity that the Galatians can find. So, Uh, Like Trevin said, this passage raises a lot of larger questions about how Paul uses the Old Testament, and then by extension, obviously, kind of makes us think, okay, how do we read the Old Testament as Christians in light of the gospel? Especially gets tricky when you start using words like allegory and figurative. Okay, so we're going to talk about some different ways to view the passage, but Matt, would you give maybe just an overall point that you think Paul is making here? Maybe that's where we could start, just say, okay, what, what is this like, generally speaking, what do we say about this? And then we'll go through some views of how the, how the hermeneutics relate to it. Does that work for you? Sure. Yeah. So he, the basic point is that he's contrasting um, the covenants that God makes with Abraham and Moses, uh, but the Abrahamic covenant being the, the covenant of promise and the Mosaic or the, the Sinaitic covenant being the covenant of the law. He's, he's, he's contrasting those two covenants using the examples of Sarah and Hagar. And we can get into why he's using those two women as examples um, later on as we talk, but that's the basic 
point of the passage. Okay, so let's talk through then a handful of kind of the major views on how we view the way that Paul is using uh, this passage in the point that he's making to the Galatians. Yeah, so um, there, I, I guess I would say there are four basic views here. Um, Richard Longenecker says that this is a New Testament author's inspired use of the Old Testament, and it's therefore unrepeatable. So we can't do what Paul is doing here when we read the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, when he talks about this passage in his Galatians commentary, he calls this Paul's rhetorical flourish. So this isn't necessarily an exegetical point that Paul is making. It's more just a rhetorical addition. He's already made the point earlier in Galatians 3 and 4. This is kind of the last final climax, but he's, he's not, he's not climaxing exegetically. He's, he's doing so using rhetoric. He's, he's drawing on this story rhetorically. Uh, Richard Hayes talks about this passage. He, he actually really is referencing Isaiah 54 when he talks about this passage. Uh, I, I'm more interested in focusing on the story in the Pentateuch, but when Richard Hayes talks about it, he, this is his version of intertextuality in which he argues that, you know, what's happening in the New Testament authors is that they're catching up the Old Testament. And I don't mean like they're catching the Old Testament authors up. I just mean um, the texts are being caught up into the story of Jesus and here the story of the church. And so Paul is rereading Old Testament texts in light of the resurrection and Pentecost. Uh, what I argue is that uh, there's actually a lot more exegetical rationale that Paul has for reading these stories together than those first three views give credit for. So there's actually a lot more evidence in the text of the Pentateuch to, to say that Paul is actually doing something exegetical, not just rhetorical, not just inspired and unrepeatable, and not just kind of post-resurrection interpretation. He's actually reading the text carefully. So, so, uh, well, get, give us some. So, there's four views that you've laid out there, and you're you're coming with the, the fourth view, saying that he, Paul, is uh, relying on this illustration on the, the the text from the Pentateuch here in the way that he, he he's using this illustration in a way that you're saying is appropriate uh, for mm. Paul to to do. He's not simply doing a rhetorical flourish or whatnot. What what is the rationale that leans you and makes you lean in that direction? And I, I mean, do you think figurative allegory, like those are appropriate terms for that, or do they cloud the issue? How do you um, how do you come to the to this conclusion, being that there's exegetical basis for this? Yeah. So, just real quick on the term allegory, um, Paul's Paul's term here that he uses in Greek is allegorumena, and so it's I mean it's literally allegory, uh, but that term is confusing. To most modern readers, uh, we, we when we think of allegory, we think that people are just making stuff up. You know, they're they're mapping on something that doesn't have anything to do with a different text onto that text. And so, you know, I understand why. You know, in, in this case, the CSB has chosen to use a different word because it may cause confusion. Um, but what Paul means by allegory is an allegorumina here is something more like um, typology, where stories in the Old Testament are building on one another, both in their historical detail and in the way that the author or authors link together the texts that tell those stories. So in this case, Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, is linking together the story of Sarah and Hagar with the story of 
Israel at Sinai. And so there, we can get into each of these, but there are a number of different um, connections between Genesis 16 and other stories in the Pentateuch. Uh, first of all, Genesis 16 and 21 are both connected to Genesis 3 and 4, the, the fall story, and then Cain and Abel, and also to Genesis 12, Abraham's first reception of the, the covenant. It's also, Genesis 16 is also linked forward to the Exodus event. It is linked to Israel's, and it's linked to Israel's wandering in the book of Numbers. And so this story of Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 16, and then also in Genesis 21, has connections both before and after it in the rest of the beginning of Israel's story in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So are there multiple, would you say then that there are, in some sense, multiple meanings here, like the way that Moses is reusing it in other parts of the Pentateuch versus the way Paul is using it? They're maybe not contradicting each other, but there's some sort of, this allegory method is a way that they are taking the same story without taking out of its historical context and making a larger point. How would you talk about about how it's used between the two authors? Well, I think I would rather say that the point that Paul is making where he's contrasting the covenant made with um, Israel at Sinai with the covenant God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12, that same contrast uh, he also makes with Hagar's covenant and Sarah's covenant. Well, that point that Paul is making is the same point that Moses makes in the Pentateuch. So they're not making different points. Paul isn't, I don't think Paul is, um, you know, sort of, applying Moses's point to a different, I mean, it is a different situation in the sense that Christ has come, but I think that the same basic point of Moses is the point that Paul is making in Galatians. There are two different covenants here. There's the covenant with Sarah, which maps onto the covenant with um, Abraham and then, you know, the, the covenant of promise. And then there's the covenant with Hagar that God makes in the desert that maps onto the covenant that God makes with Israel in the desert in Sinai. And Paul also is contrasting those two covenants in Galatians 3 and 4. And so he's making the exact same point that Moses is making in his story. So, I mean, as you've kind of surveyed the landscape of evangelicalism, do you do you see pastors, church leaders, when they're interpreting this um, this passage in, in preaching or teaching, or uh, do you, do you, where, where would you say the majority of evangelical church leaders would line up on the four views that you put out there um, that you described earlier? And what what is it about the allegory and the figurative kind of language that that makes some evangelicals really uncomfortable? Yeah, so I think that, I guess maybe a generation previous to me would opt for kind of the Longenecker view where Paul is doing something that's inspired and therefore correct. And only he can do it. And only he can do it. Don't try this at home, kids. That kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when I, I mean, I could be wrong here, but my hunch is that when, when pastors who take that approach or, or professors who take that approach preach or teach this passage, my hunch is that they probably preach, you know, 411 through um, 20 and then get to 421 uh, through 31 and say, well, this is making the same basic point, and they don't really dive into it very deeply. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of my hunch. Kind of like it's making the same point, but with a picture. Yep, yep. I, I think the same kind of practical application or, or how you approach it cashes out with Luther's view as well, where you just preach the preceding passage 
and then mention 21 through 31 at the end and say, this is making the same point, but with this story of Sarah and Hagar. Um, you know, I think people want to retain their view of inspiration and inerrancy while also not really understanding what Paul is doing here. And therefore those two views make the most sense. Well, is, is, um, is part of it too, just the challenge. I mean, we always, we always wind up these episodes with talking about how we would preach or teach this passage is, do you think part of it may just be, I mean, it's, it can be confusing, you know, the talk of the, the I mean, the, the different covenants, the way he's mapping them onto this, the allegory of the, the, this, the certain figurative way or language that he's using um, in order to to make the point he's making. Um, I, how would you preach or teach this in a way that you think would make sense to today's congregation? Right. Yeah. So you asked earlier, and then just now you mentioned again about how we deal with figurative language. And I, I think that's also maybe a barrier to modern readers. We don't deal a lot with typology, figuration, things that were, were normal for the Old Testament authors and then for the New Testament authors that are reading them. We just don't think that way really a lot in, in uh, our culture. But that's what Paul is doing is he's using this story to make this theological point. And it's not ripping off Moses or, or jumping off where Moses left off. It's actually making the same point, like I said. And so we have to understand then what happens in figuration. And so if I were, if I were going to preach or teach this passage, what I would want to do is I would want to make very clear that initial point that we talked about at the very beginning, Paul is still contrasting these two kinds of covenants, a covenant of grace, basically, and a covenant of law. Um, he uses two different stories to do that. Sarah and Hagar, Abraham and Sinai. Those are the, the, the sort of maps uh, onto these two stories, or really Zion and Sinai. And the reason that he's using, and so if I was preaching this, I would say the reason he's using these stories this way, where Sarah's story maps onto Mount Zion and Hagar's story maps onto Sinai, is because both sets of stories map ultimately onto those two covenants, the covenant of grace, the covenant of law. And that's when I would, you know, and, you know, again, you don't want to overload people with information in a sermon. You don't want to, you know, bring the fire hose out. Um, but, you know, for instance, walking them through the connections between what Moses is about Hagar in Genesis 16. So she's cast out just like Adam and Eve are cast out. Cain is cast out. Um, Abraham, when he sleeps with Hagar, he listens to the voice of Sarah, just like Adam listens to the voice of Eve. Um, the, the husband takes the gift offered by his wife, both in Genesis three and in Genesis 16. And then, um, they're cursed. So this, this has resonances with Genesis three and with, uh, also Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will curse those who curse you. So looking backwards, the Hagar narrative, that initial story in Genesis 16 is related to the fall. It's, it's portrayed similarly to the fall. And then if we look forward, Hagar's covenant, the covenant that God makes with Hagar in Genesis 16, she's told to flee toward Shur. She, she's told to submit. She's oppressed. She's cast out. She's an Egyptian slave free, fleeing from her master into the wilderness. She's in physical danger from lack of water. And, and the promise that she's given is received in the wilderness. Well, we can say all the same things about Israel in the Exodus, they flee from Pharaoh. They flee towards Shur. Uh, they have to submit and are oppressed by Pharaoh beforehand. They're cast out. 
their Egyptian slaves fleeing from their master into the wilderness. The, they immediately experience physical danger due to lack of water, and they receive the promise, uh, really the law, in the wilderness. That's where Sinai is, in the wilderness. And then finally, if we jump forward to Numbers, Hagar's story is not only portrayed like the fall, and not only is it portrayed like Sinai, but it's also portrayed like Israel wandering in the wilderness. So there are some other conceptual parallels there between Genesis 16 and Numbers, really a few different chapters, 13, 20, 27, 32. So, you know, the, the, the point that Moses is making, I, I think, and what I argue is, that, that the covenant, the promise that God makes to Hagar in Genesis 16 is the same kind of promise that he makes to Israel at Sinai. It's not, it's not a new promise. It doesn't nullify the Abrahamic promise. It doesn't, it's not in competition with the Abrahamic promise. It's a different kind of promise. It's a promise basically for physical protection. It's not a promise of grace. It's not a covenant of grace. It's not a saving covenant. It's a covenant of law. It protects them, but it doesn't save them. And that's the same point that Paul is making in Galatians 4. This covenant at Sinai that you're so insistent upon following some of you isn't a covenant that can save you. Hmm. It's a covenant of protection. It's a legal covenant, but it's not a covenant that can save you. And since the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, it's no longer even necessary. And so, you know, I think that's the basic gist of of how I would approach that um, in a sermon. Yeah, that's really helpful. So he's kind of showing them basically that you guys are still, you're not getting the gospel because you're still going back to the law and you're putting yourself under bondage when you could be in freedom. Exactly. Yeah. If I, if I'm preaching this too, I'm thinking, I mean, the way that 21 starts out, tell me you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law, the way it ends. We are not children of the slave, but the free woman. Obviously Paul is using this picture as a way of stressing and wanting them. He's wanting the Galatians to feel something as well. Yeah. Like I think he wants them, he wants to to galvanize the emotions to get at the heart of uh the distinction between the covenants and the 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 superiority of the of the the, the promises that we've been given in the gospel, uh, as opposed to um um simply the 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 covenant that uh, you have on Mount Sinai. So I, I would want I want my congregation, even you know there's a lot of fascinating detail here. I want them walking out having the sense of and the feeling that Paul seems to be going after with the, the Galatians that he's first writing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, if you, uh, if you're listening here and you want a little bit more of this conversation, actually, I'm going to make a shameless plug for my other podcast, uh, church grammar. So Matt and I talked about this and a whole host of other things on that episode of church grammar. And he talks a little bit more in that one about hermeneutics and biblical interpretation and kind of the bigger, give you some bigger handles on, what he's talking about here. So if you want some more stuff about how do I teach on this? How do I write on this? How do I think about the Bible this way? Matt gives some really good um, advice there as well. And that's actually what got him on here. Uh, that podcast was so good that we wanted to have him talk on Word Matters about it too. So Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on again. And Trevin, thanks as always for being on here with me. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.